the most successful customers that we've had, the thing that they do is they realize that they need to move quickly so they can't just stop to do safety. But if they take a little bit of time, generally upfront, and do things like a hazard analysis, so it doesn't have to take too long. Welcome to The Future Of, a podcast by Fresh Consulting, where we discuss and learn about the future of different industries, markets, and technology verticals. Together, we'll chat with leaders and experts in the field and discuss how we can shape the future human experience. I'm your host, Jeff Dance. In this episode of The Future Of, we're joined by Nathan Bivens, Fort Robotics CTO, former CTO of Humanistic and a certified machine safety expert to explore the future of robotic safety. Nathan, thanks for being here with us. Oh, Jeff, thanks for having me. Good stuff. For those who don't know you, if we could get some quick insight into your experience and kind of your journey in hardware and robotics, tell us more about yourself. Well, I think it's an interesting past. So I started out at Apple. I, you know, I got a couple degrees in electrical engineering. I was really hardware focused, started at Apple doing hardware design on what was the mobile products in the early 2000s, the laptop team and did a lot of really cool stuff there. You know, spent some time in China, in Asia doing uh, supported manufacturing and of the products we were working on. I mean, I helped debug issues with the original iPod, you know, some of the things that are ancient now. I was on the team at the original uh, port hardware development of the first Intel products. Like it was a pretty cool time to be there, but I kind of got pulled back to the East Coast and then worked for a company called Lutron that does like lighting controls and was working on these hybrid wired wireless, what would be now IoT devices for lighting and control in, in very large buildings. And then went up with Motorola working on these big networking boxes. So that we're doing, you know, hybrid IP to RF communications. So I've kind of been a whole bunch of different things up to that point, you know, doing hardware, doing software, doing architecture, doing, you know, some network development. So it was a little bit of everything. And then I guess I get bored easily because then I started looking around and I found an ad for on Craigslist of all places, and it had for a company that was looking for an engineer and they worked on landmine clearance. It's like, well, gee, that's interesting. Not something you run into every day. And that's how I met uh, Samuel and one of the founders of Humanistic Robotics, where I got into the world of robotics with probably the most obvious mission for a robot, which is to clear landmines. You know, of the dull, dirty, and dangerous, you probably can't get any more dull, dirty, or dangerous than uh, clearing landmines. And I was the first electrical engineer, first software, hardware, anything other than a mechanical engineer with the company. So we kind of audacious thinking we could build a robot to clear landmines when like really none of us had any experience with robotics, but. That's how most companies start. We keep going. <laughs> I guess is yeah, you kind of have to be naive to, to think, oh yeah, I could do that. And we took on the task of converting a five ton track loader from Terex into a robot, which in, this was in 2012, you know, the software, the hardware was, was a lot less mature than it is today. So, you know, we did developed a remote control system, did teleoperation, and then we started adding some autonomy to it and very quickly realized that this was a very dangerous machine. So, you know, something that's five tons, drives by itself, and can go over 15 miles an hour can be very, very scary when you're operating around it. So we developed a safety solution that something literally just for self-preservation that we could trust. And that basic work we did in, in wireless safety for that machine and then some governance on the AI is really what was just the very beginnings of what became Fort after several years. So the, you know, HRI or humanistic robotics developed these two things, this robot and this safety systems, and then the landmine clearance tools themselves that ended up being deployed with the UN all over Africa and the Middle East in support of peacekeeping missions. But it was quite clear that the UN was not interested in the robot. You know, they were moving from a world where people were doing, you know, landmine clearance and really IED clearance with shovels and sticks. So moving to something that was vehicle-based was such a huge improvement in, in both safety and efficiency that, you know, saying, okay, now you're going to deploy robots. So it's just a bridge too far. But we did find that other companies that were doing mobile robot development had the same kind of problems. And so we started selling our wireless 
safety technology to other folks that kind of were peers in the industry, the fledgling industry at the time. Until early 2019, late 2018, we realized like there was just the convergence between landmine clearance and robotics just wasn't really going to happen anytime soon. And uh, that's when we formed Fort and Fort's been growing ever since as a beyond that those first basic pieces of wireless safety to really more of a, a platform for safety and security in modern robotics. I guess that was a, a long version of my No, it's history. great. No, I appreciate the journey. It is interesting, especially when we start thinking about clearing landmines, you know, with robots and obviously with everything going on in Ukraine right now, I would think that that could be really useful. Yeah. Sadly, there's always more work to be done in that field. I hope it's one of those things you could just sort of knock out and we could move on, but that never seems to be the case. Obviously, the, the convergence of all these technologies probably is helping in, in that regards, but still super challenging, you know, when you get into the, those real world applications. I love where your company's focused. Obviously, you chatted a bunch with Sam, but grateful to have you here. I did notice you had six patents as well. I was just curious, where are those focused? Are they also in robotics? Or are they more uh, hardware engineering oriented? They're all pretty much robotics. You know, there's some, there's a few different things in there, you know, around governance of autonomy and the safety communications, some newer things around safety protocols and optimization and latency characterization of links and, you know, a lot of the kind of deep technical pieces of like, how do you do safety reliably over wireless, but also getting into some things around security and how you mix safety and security and really how security is such an integral part of a robotic safety solution because you're releasing these complex machines into environments where they're it's largely uncontrolled. You know, it's not, we don't have fences and walls so much anymore with these machines. So security is now a bigger problem. Thank you. Let's talk about that more. You know, what are some of the, actually, before we jump there, you recently spoke at Robo Business. As I understand, the topic was on robotic safety and cybersecurity. What were some of the key takeaways from that talk? If I were to ask you in an elevator, we don't have time for the whole thing, but like, what were some of the key takeaways? I guess I gave myself a good segue because it's really is the fact that, you know, safety and security are tied at the hip in modern robotics, especially when you go outside the factory or the warehouse. You know, if we're indoors, we can we can kind of contain the problem and say, well, I'm on nice little private networks and I have walls or fences and I have controlled access to the site. But, you know, our customers are doing work in like agricultural robotics or construction robotics or in transportation is kind of the ultimate one, right? These are largely uncontained applications. The networks are sometimes completely public, but at the very least, it's harder to control access. So the idea that, you know, safety and security are tied together, you really can't have one without the other. That you can, sometimes the proper response to a security violation might actually be something we would consider traditionally a safety response, right? If you have detect a critical intrusion into a robot, you might need to shut the robot down in a functionally safe way. Whereas, you know, if that happened in a financial system, right? Obviously it's like, it's, it's a different type of response. So we end up integrating these two things together more intimately. And from a process of development standpoint, you know, if anybody who's done safety development or really any kind of rigorous engineering is going to be familiar with the good old V model, you know, you start with your requirements on the, on the top left, you work through design development and then validation on the verification on the, on the upside. And that's really well, you know, tried process for safety, but really there's another layer that you add to that when you run security, right? Instead of starting with a hazard analysis, you're starting with a threat model and you're working through requirements and architecture and design the same way you do for safety. So there's a way to kind of unify safety and security. So it's really just those parallels. This is not a brave, brave new world. It's like a new dimension to ensuring, you know, you can trust the behavior of any system, but robots in particular. Thanks for that depth of insight. And I would have loved to have heard uh, the entire thing. So I have to grab maybe the, the deck for me, if you don't mind. Tell us, you know, as we think about today, what are the top concerns and top problems in robot safety? And I think you've just kind of alluded to some of those, but what do you see as sort of the top problems? I think it's it's probably forgotten a little bit, but from your perspective. I'd say that's a big one. You know, the people get into building robots, not because they love safety and security, right? They get into building a robot because they want to solve a problem. They're focused on the application and rightfully so. 
So often during development, you know, safety is we sell a lot of wireless e-stops to people who are just like, hey, I need some way to stop this machine because I'm still working on the software, the sensors. So who knows what it could do? I need to maintain control. We sell a lot of those. But then often when they think they're ready to deploy, they've, they've validated their software and say, oh, great, you know, I can trust it now. But if you look at it from a safety standpoint, I haven't tested it nearly enough to actually show that it is safe to the, you know, six, seven, eight, nines of reliability that are required for most safety applications. So it's really about like, how do you enable those customers, those people who want to build the robots to move as fast as they want to. And certainly if they're VC funded, really need to move to keep the investors happy while still having a safe application, right? Being able to ensure that, yeah, we, we're never able to just test our way out of this problem. So we have to have designed in safety measures and in the same sense, designed in security measures, because you're never going to be able to, you know, ensure it just by testing it forever. So like, that's a big problem that we see. And I've seen a lot of customers who don't start with safety in mind. And then often they go to, you know, make that big sale and their customer starts asking hard questions that they don't have good answers to. And at best, it's a significant delay. At worst, it could kill a deal. On one hand, of course, I love hearing from customers. I love being helpful, but I hate when they're in that situation because obviously it's a difficult place to be. Any other thoughts on, on balancing that? You kind of alluded to that, but as you think about the you know, speed of innovation and you know, a lot of most robot companies fail, and yet the confluence of like the demand for robots that can solve some of the labor shortage issues that we have, and the dirty, dull, dangerous situations that we have right now, and you know, just everything seems to be converging into the need for more robotics and automation, and yet still most robotics companies fail, and so they they do have that pressure to kind of, and most people don't know that there's a lot of pressure to succeed, and it's hard. It's really hard to to create a successful robot company with the capital requirements, the intensive engineering and software requirements, and the, the, the fact that you're on the frontier with, you know, user experience things and, and regulation that you're trying to navigate that hasn't really been laid yet. Like, so how do you sort of balance the need for kind of speed and innovation, but also something safe? I mean, I guess maybe that's why Fort exists, right? It's like, hey, we're going we're gonna to handle this for you. But tell me if you have any more thoughts on getting that balance right. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. Like, that's what we're trying to do it for. But if I take a step back from my, I'll try not to make this a sales pitch. The thing that I found the, the most successful customers that we've had, the thing that they do is they realize that they need to move quickly. So they can't just stop to do safety. But if they take a little bit of time, generally up front, and do things like a hazard analysis, it doesn't have to take too long. Just to understand the scope of the safety challenges they face then often you can look at it and say, well, there's some high priority things that I do need to do. And often they're not that hard to solve. And then there's some stuff that's a little lower on the priority list that maybe you knock out later, right? You don't, you, you get your first robots in the field and you keep improving. So a lot of it is just understanding the scope of the problem, which is highly dependent on the application and the environment you're operating in. So nobody else can answer that question other than the people who know the application. But if you take the time to do that hazard analysis up front, it can really help you get a sense of the scale of the problem that you have and probably build in some things up front that don't take as much time as you're afraid they might have taken that would scare you off from even thinking about safety. You get that stuff done up front and then you probably will end up better off later. And then you can also answer these questions, that the hard questions that you might get from a customer down the line because you at least thought of it. You might say, yes, I don't have a solution to that problem, but at least you recognize that that problem exists and hopefully have solved the big ones. And, and honestly, it's the same for security. You know, if you don't think about it, it's going to bite you. But if you spend some time thinking about it, even if you don't have a solution for everything, you're much better off just having a scope of what the problem is. A little bit of planning, go slow, just a tiny bit up front so you can go fast later on. Absolutely. Yeah, that's, that's a, <laughs> a good, succinct way of putting it. Tell us more about the players right now in robotic safety. So there's there's companies, but there's also, you know, regulation bodies. There's people that are kind of shaping policy and all this is sort of emerging because robots is evolving and changing dramatically. 
Tell us more about kind of the big players in the space. Yeah, you're right that there are a few different facets. You know, there's obviously the component providers and technology advancing, right? So we have, for a long time, robotics was really limited by the capability of sensors, right? And cost is still an issue, especially when you get into the safety certifiable stuff. But the cost and capability of sensors, whether it's, you know, LIDARs, radars, the stuff that we're doing these days with computer vision is just advancing so rapidly. It's that's becoming less of a It's problem. like memory. It's just progressively getting cheaper, cheaper, cheaper. Yes, absolutely. And what we can do today is seems miraculous compared to two years ago. And I can only imagine two or three years from now where it will be. So that's less of a problem. And this is why I think we're seeing more of our customers moving from R&D to like actually deployable because they're hopefully their bomb costs are coming down, their capabilities are rapidly advancing. And obviously you certainly alluded to this, like regulation is this interesting problem that's kind of Depending where you are in the world, it's a whole different, yeah, it's a different story, right? I mean, in the U.S., we, we often say it's the Wild West. We're a very, uh, you know, tort-driven society, right? Instead of, in, in Europe, it tends to be more like they come up with the regulations, don't really sue anybody because the regulations tell you what you have to do. And unless you're completely negligent, you're not going to get yourself in court. In the U.S., it's like we kind of let the courts figure it out, which, you know, we can argue all day about which is better. <laughs> Ultimately, I think there's a happy medium there with regulation or guidelines, just at least so people have an idea of what to do. You know, we spend a lot of time, you know, safety for years trying to figure out where that that line is because, you know, we go through safety certification with outside auditors. We have a similar process for building for security. It's difficult. It's rigorous, but it's also, you know, the, a lot of the value that we provide is having that done. So it's sort of a just comes with the job. But I understand for going through that for customers can be a real impediment to advancing their solution. So finding that balance between regulation and kind of the Wild West is, is a difficult thing. You want to have enough regulation to guide the industry, but you don't want to kill the industry at the same time, right? And you need to let it flourish and kind of figure things out in some sense too. Yeah, and honestly, I think we're relatively early on for a lot in a lot of markets. So if you went and tried to write regulation now, you'd almost certainly be wrong. And you'd probably end up killing some really good ideas that would have worked out just because you didn't consider them properly in regulation. I mean, as an example, for years, when we first started doing wireless, just wireless emergency stops, we would have undoubtedly in every trade show we'd go to, a number of people come up and say, you can't do that. And we'd say, well, no, you can. It just depends which standard you look at because we were completely compliant and I could prove all of the requirements to, you know, the, the standards for core functional safety, 61508 and, and the calculations for uh, undetected error rates and some of the communication requirements for safety communication networks, all that stuff we could prove. But then there was like, I think an RIA standard for robotics that said I mean, e-stops can't be wireless. And why did it say that? Well, at the time, people were doing stuff like just putting a button on Wi-Fi and saying it was an e-stop. Well, that's not good enough. So they said, they kind of took the, the, the big hammer approach and said, oh, you can't do this wirelessly. When in reality, it's just, you have to do it properly. And now that's obviously been changed, but it's easy to kind of overreach because you just don't know enough early when you're doing those kind of regulations. So, so there's a balance there. And I don't, I don't know that you ever strike it perfectly, but I do think I'm seeing, you know, the right discussions going on right now. So I'm, I'm hopeful that we'll, we're going to land in the right place. Thank you. As we think about, you know, AI and robotics can go hand in hand. That might be part of the definition of the future of what a robot is, is some sort of intelligence. And I know that gets bundled with AI, but the rapid rise in generative AI and how that can impact robotics, given that you can have not just a library of visual images or library of text-based model, but also visual, visual models that can help robots see and identify things even better, but also a library of control movements that could translate and combine with the visual model when you start thinking about a series of steps. It just seems like the generative AI kind of AI is going to keep pushing robots forward. And how do you see that kind of affecting safety you know, are you more concerned? Are you just like, okay, now, now this is really going to 
raise the need for more safety? What are your thoughts? I think it it ultimately does increase the need for a focus on safety, but it's really about balancing it, right? You know, again, you could use safety to kill all that great technology, right? There's no question that AI, you're right, AI is the future in, in a lot of senses of robotics, right? Even just simply using AI and, and ML to just do simulation work you can run through a lot of simulations in a lot more time to prove out that even your non-AI-based automation software is going to cover all the bases. If you use some systems that are a little better at, you know, coming up with scenarios rather than having to collect that much data in the real world. So there's so many applications that you can't really even cover them all. But, you know, when you're running like generative AI, things that are non-deterministic in the field to like, you know, hopefully improve the behavior of the system over time. It just really means that because the system's not deterministic, you really, there's no way to test your way out of determining the trustability or predictability of that system. And if we think about the way people work together, you trust somebody because you can predict their behavior. You know, you have a set of rules that you operate by, you know, you're working next to somebody who's in an excavator. You're going to trust they're not going to hit you. They're watching for you. So there's rules, whether they're spoken or unspoken, that you've established. And our approach, and, and I think it's the right one, is that it's really about having those rules established. And it doesn't mean you're really constraining the behavior of the autonomy, but you're just making sure that it's staying in a, in a well-understood, safe operating area and that there's the right levels of oversight. You know, that I guess maybe I've, I've read too much science fiction and Isaac Asimov, but, you know, the, the, there was something to the Asimov's three laws of robotics, you know, that, that the right people need to stay in control and it needs to make sure that the robots shouldn't harm people and they should understand how to prioritize different levels of harm. And that's out there a little bit, but. It's out there a little bit. And yet, you know, we're seeing in modern warfare, a lot of use of drones, you know. If we're really getting into drones, it's not a stretch to say, hey, modern warfare is going to, you know, it already involves robotics, but to a greater extent, you know, it's like, I don't think it's a, a far stretch to think about the use of robotics and, and the fears that the everyday human has about that, or at least in the US that <laughs> people have. I've heard that in the Asia, we now have like a, maybe it's one to 100 or one to 10 ratio of like robots that we're integrating with because uh, there's a different culture around robotics there probably different risk tolerances, and which is all part of the calculation. Right. Tell us more about your thoughts on the future. You know, what, what would be some of the top concerns for robotic safety in the future we have today? And, you know, creating guidelines, creating standards, making sure you have thought in advance about safety, you have a framework for that. I guess I think about driving, you know, it's like if I go drive my car, well, there's lanes, there's stoplights, there's rules that kind of guide my driving, even though I'm driving a very big vehicle that where you have a lot of accidents. I mean, as much as like 50,000 deaths in a year, right? Just driving around in, in the US alone, it's, it's dangerous, but we have guidelines that kind of guide that. But as you think about the future of robotics, I don't think it's a question that we might have 100 times more robotics or IoT devices connected in the next 10 years. So what will be some of the big concerns for kind of robotics safety in the future? I think there's always the concern that like, what kind of oversight is there? And then when bad things do happen, how much disclosure do we get? And I think that's something we see in the, the autonomous vehicle world today. There's, you know, when there is an accident, there's obviously gets a lot of press. I honestly think in a lot of cases, some of the companies that are doing this autonomous vehicle research really do themselves a disservice by not being more transparent about what happened. Because in a lot of cases, there's a good explanation. You know, it's like, oh, somebody got hit. Well, they jumped out between two parked cars. If a human driver was doing that, they probably would have hit them as well. And they're, they're, I've seen these cases, but then they tend to be really close to the, to the vest with information around those accidents and only pick and choose what they release. So then that causes people to be really skeptical. And I think you're right, as robots become more commonplace, accidents are going to happen. Statistically, it's just going to happen. And I think the more transparent companies are with the information around those, the better off they're going to be because people are going to trust and say, oh, well, you know, you admit when you're wrong and you all, so I can trust you when you say you're, you weren't wrong and it was someone else's fault. I think that's going to be critical. 
Now, what goes along with that is companies have to be confident in the quality of their solutions so that they feel okay releasing this information saying, well, hey, look, we did everything right and something did happen. Statistically, that's just the way the world works. Nothing's perfect. If you have that confidence because you know you've done the safety and security and design work with the proper level of rigor, then I, I would hope that we can establish that kind of a culture where it's not necessarily about blame, but about learning and improving. And then, you know, <laughs> there's always a, always a level of litigiousness that we're going to have to deal with, but hopefully it's more of a, a kind of typical, you know, product liability stuff that we everybody deals with. And it's less about, you know, just going after people. Right. We're definitely litigious here in the U.S. I've heard we had uh, like one lawyer who's been trained for like every roughly 20 people or something like that. And so we, whereas other countries, it might be like a one to 400, you know, ratio or something like that. So a few more engineers and a few less lawyers, I guess. <laughs> you know, one part of our really light research suggested that, you know, there really aren't many deaths related to robots. If we look at like the last 20 plus years, it's only been like, I think a one and a half deaths per year as it relates to robots. But I'm aware of a situation where someone lost an eye and so there's deaths, there's accidents. And when you're dealing with machines, cars, I mentioned 50,000 deaths in the US, you know, per year, you're going to have issues, right? We're human beings. But, you know, as we contemplate the future, robots will be more integrated, you know, than they are now. Historically, they've been in kind of cages and we just see more and more use cases and companies and investment into the kind of the human robot integration sort of at scale. So, you know, as we think about safety layers and like how we design the future of intent, like what thoughts do you have for, or maybe you can articulate more of those layers that we need to be thinking about as robots get more integrated into our work. I mentioned Asia because we're seeing a lot more robots just in like restaurants and the workplace and not so much in the U.S. so far, but what thoughts do you have on that? Well, it's actually something I, I think it's worth mentioning is, you know, well, we haven't seen a lot of accidents with robots directly, at least not reported in that way. Like you're absolutely right that the landscape is changing. The, the fences are coming down. So we are going to see more interaction between people in vulnerable situations and robots. So I think it's something to be concerned about. In a lot of places where we are seeing our customers pushing their robots, they are taking people out of situations where they're, it's inherently dangerous. So you know, you also have to consider like it's about harm and risk reduction. You know, maybe the robot itself is potentially more dangerous than the human operator, but maybe now the human operator isn't even just sitting in a piece of construction equipment for eight hours a day for 30 years. And then they end up with like these nerve damage due to the, the vibration constantly. So, you know, the computer doesn't care. <laughs> the electrons will shake around. They don't care. So, you know, we have to look at the relative risk. And this is where I mentioned, you know, understanding your risk as you're developing your solution. You can often say, yes, it's risky, but the alternative is actually really risky. So I'm willing to accept this. And as long as you can look at those things and balance them out, it can, it can work out just fine. On the kind of advances front, there's some stuff that, that I think is really interesting, and, and I don't know if this is a common concept, but I'll, I'll give him a shout out because I've heard him talk about it. Uh, Ricardo Mariani, who's he's a head of industrial safety at, uh, now at NVIDIA, he talks a lot about these three kinds of safety. And surprised I didn't hear anybody else say this, so I don't know if it's his thing or not. There's you know predictive safety, which is really simulation. How can we predict when the, the things are going to happen? It's generally offline. There's proactive safety, which is watching sensors and trying to avoid the dangerous situation before it happens. So this is almost like ADAS, you know, it's like, I'm going to keep you in the lane so that you don't hit the other car. And then there's reactive safety. And this is where most of the safety has been traditionally, which is like an e-stop button. Somebody, something happening and reacts to it. Most of the safety is largely reactive today. What we're seeing now with advances in sensors, advances in processing and ability to have like high performance, functionally safe platforms is this move to like kind of push safety up, right? We've simulation is continuing to grow. So that's great. Gather a lot of data from the field and hopefully improve our algorithms, improve our sensing platforms over time so they can be better at detecting things. 
but then also having these like proactive safety layers that are kind of more sophisticated than traditional safety, but not doing full AI, nudging things in the right way, right? Keeping the machines within their safe operating area. So hopefully you don't have to hit the e-stop button as often or ever. And I think ultimately what happens is you just end up with a more nuanced and sophisticated view of what is safety as part of the total machine. And I think that will enable hopefully safer machines overall and ultimately probably better functioning machines, right? Less downtime because you don't have to hit the e-stop button that often. I was kind of thinking about like a car, like, you know, how often are you slamming on the brakes or pulling the e-brake or something like that? I mean, not that often it happens. We have accidents, but like you're doing a lot of things before because you understand the rules, the regulations, you know, it's like the, you've been trained, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So I don't know if that's a good analogy, but I really like the predictive, proactive and reactive sort of classification of safety as we think about designing the future with more intent. It's kind of a good framework to kind of think about. As far as, you know, where you guys are focused, it seems like the evolution has been from reactive sort of devices towards, you know, the predictive and the proactive. And so is that where you, you know, is that where kind of the progressions we think about not just hardware, but also software playing together for the future of safety? Is that where, you know, Fort is going and kind of other companies are going as well? I would definitely say so. So like, you know, we're headed kind of up here, right? We started in reactive. There's still a lot of work to do there as we see you know, everybody starts with a one-to-one deployment, right? You have like one person monitoring the machine. Now we're starting to see customers having larger networks. They're more dynamic where the interaction between the human and the machine is different. You know, it's like a one to 10 deployment and the human operator sort of bouncing machine to machine, right? This, This is how you multiply the effectivity of those people you have. It's not like you're getting rid of the people, but they're more, they're more productive because the the dull work's being done by the machine and the human's more oversight. So enabling those kind of interactions while maintaining safety, that's like stuff we're doing right now. The work that I'm doing kind of as, as a CTO, kind of over the hilltop kind of stuff is, is definitely more into enabling more proactive safety. So it's enabling dynamic connections of more sophisticated sensors on machines in the environment sharing data between machines all while maintaining safety to enable that, that like, you know, avoid the problem before you get there, you know, see around the corner because there's other machines there, or there's a a camera in the environment that I can get data from and use that to make safety decisions to know that, oh yeah, there's somebody coming. I'm going to slow down the synchronized my crossing of this intersection with that other forklift and just make sure that whether it's human operated or a robot, make sure that it's, you know, I, I don't, we don't run into each other. So those kinds of things to, to optimize behavior, but also to avoid these safety scenarios. So yeah, nobody has to slam on the brakes and building that in a way so that it's deployable by a robotics company and not have to spend years <laughs> developing it themselves. Thank you. A few other questions on this. One is like, are there regulatory bodies you're working with right now or that are part of the designing this feature with a bit more intent? I know you said we're balancing, but are you guys actually working with any bodies or aware of any other bodies that are really influencing standards of safety for the future? So, I mean, we're on the RIA 1508 committee. They're obviously in, in the U.S. really guiding the standards for robotics and, and started with, they really focused mostly on AMRs. The world of outdoor robotics, you know, construction, agriculture, mining, transportation to an extent, like it's less, there's less focus on regulation. I think it's just less mature. There are some regulations in Europe. We're, we're not on those committees, although we've been, we've been talking to folks in a lot of the sort of industry related groups about it. So we're kind of, <laughs> we're in a close circle of folks who are worried about it, but, but, uh, but not sitting on the committees. And, you know, I think you mentioned before, some of them kind of maybe a little ahead of the game. And I think it's making life difficult for the companies that are trying to deploy solutions. Like we have a bunch of customers in those worlds who are just saying, look, we're not going to deploy in Europe yet because we can't deal with those regulations. We're going to figure it out in North America. And then the hope is by the time they have that, either the regulations have adapted or they have enough confidence that they can they can meet this, the regulations in Europe. So it's that, that balancing act 
of dealing with the regulations, knowing you have a, a safe solution, a trustworthy solution, but but also being able to move fast. And I, I tell you, the the regulation world is a is a tough one because I, I on one hand it really helps us when there's regulation because it makes it so that you have to do things the right way. It does really make it can make it difficult to deploy some of these solutions because you're right; they try to move so fast that writing regulation, you know, the second you write it and you get it through committee, it's already outdated. And now somebody's saying, hey, wait a minute, why can't I do this new thing? So I, I do think that there's a, a danger of moving too fast and we are at least as, uh, as much as we can influence them. Well, I definitely see you guys as a main player in the, in the future robotic safety. One of the serious companies that is, you know, is getting the funding and also helping customers, you know, move the needle. So that's awesome. You know, when you talk about dangers, there's always this sort of like the fear of robotics and you think about like, okay, hey, if we're going to have a hundred times more robotics and, and IoT devices in the next 10 years, like, can you speak to any of those worst case scenarios? Because a lot of people, they jump there really quickly. You know, they're like, oh, we have all these ro robots like connected in a network. And given that cybersecurity is like the silent warfare of today, and it's like one of the major warfares of today. And cybersecurity, kind of safety and security kind of go hand in hand, as you mentioned up front. You know, should human being, beings like fear these sort of, you know, you mix in AI and robots on, on broad networks. Can you speak to that? Well, you know, I think I wouldn't say we should fear them, but we should definitely be cautious. And I think you're right to point out that, you know, s traditional safety is certainly a concern, you know, are the robots just gonna miss something and run you over? But that's, if you look at the scale of risk, that's generally a small risk, right? There's one injury. No, in the worst case scenario, let's say you had a, you know, thousand delivery robots all over a city, somebody hacked into them and was able to take them all over. You could do major, at least economic, if not physical damage with a, a you know, army of machines that you now controlled. So the, the impact of a security breach actually could be significantly more dire than a safety issue. So I, I think you're right that as we get to mass deployment, especially in less controlled environments where maybe there aren't any fences, it becomes even more critical to take a really hard look at security and understand that security is an ever evolving threat. So just because you were secure a year ago doesn't mean you are today and have to have, you know, the ability to do to do updates in the field. You've got to be able to push updates. You have to have an active threat management, threat monitoring process. And one of the things that's really come to light and there's even been some guidance, I think, from NIST and the White House at this point about software bomb management, you know, you have Robots are built on complex stacks that pull software from a lot of different places. And some of it's open source, some of it's closed source. You know, there are merit comes from all over the world. Yeah. But you need to have an understanding of where that's coming from, just so that when some vulnerability in your stack inherently will bump, it's going to pop up, right? So you need to know, are we affected by it? And it has to be almost instantaneous. So that level of like rigor and management of your of your software stack needs to be just built into your systems because otherwise otherwise you'll have vulnerabilities you won't even know exist and that that's really scary so and what i mentioned before this idea that sometimes security vulnerabilities might result in a safety behavior right if if you start you need to have monitoring live monitoring at the endpoint network monitoring won't solve this problem the robots need to have some level of monitoring themselves to watch for anomalous behavior. And that in the worst case scenario might be, hey, I got to shut this thing down because something funny is going on and I don't want to take the risk that, you know, maybe I'm infected with, you know, some bad actors got in somehow. Some bad actor that could hang out there for a few years and then, and then trigger something much like computers. I mean, that really happens today, right? It's like you could have a bad actor hanging out for a couple of years until they decide to light up something. Yeah, and then you could hope it's just something like a DDoS attack, but, you know, maybe they could be stealing your IP. Maybe they, you know, who knows? It's interesting. You know, I think, I think if I could summarize, the fear is probably overplayed right now if you look at the actual accidents and kind of things that are happening that we're aware of. But the risk is still high in the future. And so that's why we need to be proactive about, you know, safety, cybersecurity, and really designing with intent given where things are going. 
I think that's fair. Yeah, I, I think people, you know, there's a lot of science fiction around this. You know, everybody's afraid RoboCop's going to go crazy, but the risk of that today, the impact is pretty small. But we need to be careful because we could expose ourselves to a lot of risk in the future for, if it's not done right. That's why we need leaders like you in conversations like this to really, really make sure that we are, we're all planning for that future uh, together. To wrap up, I just have a few more questions, but really appreciated the insights so far. What advancements in robotics are you, you know, most excited for? There's something that's really been popping up a lot recently, and it's, it's been on my mind. This move toward, you know, the, the software-defined robot, I'm kind of stealing that from the software-defined vehicle work that's going on. And it, it, what really enables that is uh, something called mixed criticality systems. So instead of having these, you know, I buy a safety box, I buy a sensor platform, I buy, you know, they're getting converged. And this is general maturity kind of increases with, with the platforms that we're building on. But that enables a lot of really interesting interactions, both in between different levels of software, sharing sensors, so we're not having a safety dedicated sensor platform and then a perception platform. They have pretty much the same data. Why can't we use them together? They're, they're getting to that point. There are a lot of advances that I think are going to enable new applications, new use cases, because hopefully some of the costs and complexities can come down in, in designing a robot and, and making it you know work in the real world. And then also just the power, the sheer performance and power we can get, you know, at the edge on relatively small platforms is, I get excited by it and I'm not the one doing perception. So I can only imagine the stuff that the perception engineers are going to come up with in the, you know, not too distant future to, to use, to do with the, this amazing power. So I think it's really exciting. We've been in the, the robotic space for, you know, the last six years and the costs that come, have come down and then the capabilities going up. I mean, it's been a, it's a significant ramp essentially in both directions as far as like the capabilities and then the cost coming down at the same time. And so that's where, you know, we see the, the future evolving a lot more rapidly, that would say, in the next 10 years than it has in the last 10 years. Yeah, I would definitely agree. It's a, it's a very exciting time. The future of robotics being software is also a reality, right? Especially as we elevate AI. And, you know, we standardize more the, the hardware availability and capability. Yeah, and this is, I, I'm a hardware guy. Like, I go way back in hardware, but I fully admit that the future is software. It's good to align on that. What about, you had mentioned a, an industry leader that you kind of were learning from, from a safety perspective, the fellow at NVIDIA. Any other kind of industry leaders that you look to for insights as it relates to robotics and robotic safety? There's the old stalwarts, you know, the, the Rockwells, the Six, the Siemens. They're all working on some interesting stuff, you know, that they, you got to look at them and respect the work they've done in the industrial space. You know, the, the people building the new software platforms, I think, are interesting too. You know, the, the, you got Elliot Horowitz doing VM, which is kind of a, a different approach to robotic, robotic software platforms, really. And then obviously Ross, which has been a revolutionary as far as, you know, making, robotics a little more accessible, right? You can get off the ground and build something in ROS pretty quickly. And then it also can extend to being a pretty sophisticated system and very capable. So there's stuff happening everywhere. There's some startups that I've more, I, I've been talking to that are, you know, doing some really interesting like modeling and predictive, predictive modeling software. And, you know, a company that's working on what's basically rolled up to be ADAS for a robot, you know, that's more like that proactive safety layer. So. You know, the innovation is coming from every corner. And I think that's what's so interesting right now is that, you know, there's so much going on. There's so many interesting technologies coming out that the world's going to be completely different in two, three years. And, and that's the, both a scary place to be because you never know where you're going to end up, but also really exciting right now. And so I'm, I'm eager to see, you know, how far we get where we are in three years. It's, it makes my job really challenging so that I can make sure that I'm, you know, we're building the right products and, and following the right trends. But so it's stressful, but it's also super exciting. Yeah. I think Bill Gates said you, we, we overestimate like what's going to happen in a year, but we underestimate what's going to happen in 10 years. And I think if we apply that to robotics, I would say we kind of have those numbers and we maybe overestimate what's going to happen in like the next six months, but we underestimate what's going to happen in five years, like in this space. I think that's probably a fair, <laughs> a fair uh, set of gauges to use. Yeah. Awesome. 
Any other thoughts? You know, this part of this podcast is to look to the future where technology is going and try to design design the future with more intent and have these conversations help us collectively think about the future and how, how we shape it. Any other thoughts on being more proactive in this space versus reactive? You mentioned, you know, that, that continuum of robotic safety, but do you have any thoughts, any other thoughts on the future related to that? Well, I mean, I'd say that it probably reiterates some of the things we've We've already hit on, but the, you know, the, the idea that you have to think about this stuff up front, don't be afraid that you can't solve all your problems. So you just sort of like turn a blind eye and say, I'm not even going to look at it. It's the most important thing is just simply to have a, a gauge of where you think your problems are most likely, especially if you, you know, bring in somebody who understands how to do these hazard analysis. Quite often we see people thinking like, oh, I don't want to do a, a hazard analysis because the results are going to be too scary. You bring in somebody who knows how to do these things, has some experience, it probably won't be as scary as you think it is. And you'll actually feel more confident in your solution. And then don't ignore security or think that just because I, you know, I, I have a, I use TLS on my connections or I'm using some established security communications protocol, assume that you have security taken care of because there's a lot more to it than that. You know, those are the things that if you do as a robot builder, you are going to be much better off as your solution matures and you won't be blindsided because that's the worst case. You know, you think you got something ready you're you're trying to get this thing shipped and get it into customers' hands or, or you're in that point where you're trying to scale. And if these things hit you as a surprise, it can, you know, cause huge upsets to your business. So, you know, spend a little bit of time up front to, to give you that predictability and that confidence in the, in the future. Thank you. One thought I had as you were talking about that was, you know, we have HR and kind of people experience for people, but I would, I would envision a future, maybe, maybe 10 to 20 years now where we have a lot of positions that are centered around the HR or, or people experience around robotics, you know, and that, that could be like a, a robotic safety director, for example, you know, if you have as many robots in your workforce as you have people, then, you know, that, that might be an equivalent um, sort of title or role. Yeah, that's actually a good point. And, you know, we have, because we do so much safety, part of our onboarding for everybody is an understanding of what is functional safety, like what is cybersecurity at a, a little more technical level than the average person would get. And I, I think you're right that, you know, in, in the future workplace, you probably will have, you know, a little, you'll have to take that little online course, you know, and, and, and go through a few uh, a quizzes to just understand what it is to be interacting with robots, what's what to expect out of them, what not to expect. Yeah, it's going to be a different workplace. Just like, I mean, driving a car, you go through, you, know, you go through a lot of training to kind of pick up that large machine you're going to be uh, uh, directing. But on that note, you know, Sounds like we can, you know, continue to look for robotic safety, leadership, thought leadership. Any other resources you would recommend for companies when it comes to robotic safety training? And there's not just the, the building of the robots, but there's also those interacting with the robots. Does, does anything come to mind there? Well, I mean, there's there's the the trade organizations like A3 has some interesting training. You know, there's the, the TUVs all have their own training. Exida is a comp- another uh, you know, safety certifier that we work with that, that does training. There's even like Udemy courses and those sorts of things. If you're not looking for, you know, I need to be a certified safety engineer, but just to get an understanding of what is this safety thing and how do I approach it? And like these guys talking about a hazard analysis, what the heck is that? You know, I'd encourage folks who are getting into robotics, like just go do a little bit of research, watch a couple videos just to get a sense of what it is. It's a lot less scary (laughs) than a lot of people think it is. And that understanding will go a long way. You don't have to be an expert. People spend years doing that, but just having a basic understanding can allay a lot of fears. I appreciate you repeating that. They say repetition is the law of learning. And even then, even though you, you've said this a few times, I'm sure like that the next engineer, we're gonna we're gonna dive in and we're like, oh, and then we're gonna catch ourselves like three months or hopefully not three years down the road when we're we're looking for some cash from our in our in our in our startup, like or we're having an issue, you know, with a customer, like, oh. Nathan, Nathan told me about this. He told me to, to do the, to put a framework together, to do that, that risk analysis and to, uh, and to start do a little bit of planning so we can go faster later on. Appreciate that emphasis. Last question. You know, you've been at a lot of different companies, have a, have a great background, seem really deep in, in your space. And what's been one of the most rewarding experiences that you've had in, in industry so far? 
Ooh, that's a tough one. A lot of interesting, interesting experiences that I've been lucky enough to be in. I mean, honestly, it was, I would say that the process of like, you know, starting where we started, like not even thinking about building a company and then just really coming up with something, finding a need and then building a, building a business around it has been really, really rewarding. Honestly, you know, I'm somebody who's driven by solving problems as most engineers are. And I love seeing the solutions that I come up with actually make a difference in the real world. So, you know, that it's hard to beat that for me from a rewarding standpoint. So I love seeing our customers using our products, using our technologies to, you know, help them move faster, build better robots. And, and then ultimately they're the ones selling these robots and deploying them and making a difference in people's lives, you know, keeping them safer, ha- allowing them to work faster whatever the solution happens to be. Thank you. I would say you're you're working in a really cool space. So it's cool to hear that your most recent experience is maybe your most meaningful one. But as we think about the future, even at Fresh, we're working on the future as well. But our goal is to do meaningful work like like you're doing, you know, and, and align with partners and customers that that want the same. But you're at the intersection of the future robotics plus the meaning, you know, that something that's really meaningful. Like if you if you're helping them deploy faster, but also safer, then there's meaning there's, you know, you're saving lives or improving lives as a result of that uh, technology work. And that's, that's harder to find, you know, there's a lot of cool companies that do consumer gadgets, this or that, but you know, something that really benefits human beings and shapes the future is, is awesome. So. Yeah. I think it's why I've stuck around for a little, a little over 11 years now doing this. Cause yeah, I think I found something that yeah, it has, it has a unique intersection that has keep me interested. Keep going. Well, we're looking forward to partnering more in the future. And thanks for joining us and sharing your insights as a, an engineering and robotics leader. I'm grateful to have you. And, and I know our listeners will appreciate your insights. Great. Thanks. It's been a great conversation. I can talk about this stuff forever. <laughs> thanks, Nathan. The Future of Podcast is brought to you by Fresh Consulting. To find out more about how we pair design and technology together to shape the future, visit us at freshconsulting.com. Make sure to search for the future of an Apple podcast, Spotify, Google podcast, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Make sure to click subscribe so you don't miss any of our future episodes. And on behalf of our team here at Fresh, thank you for listening.